How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 154 of X-Lapse, where uh, this is the fourth or fifth time I'm trying to start this episode because uh, I was stricken with hiccups. Uh, I was fine all day until I sat down here, hit record, and uh, started hiccuping a whole heck of a lot. So uh, I had to step away, and I think, I hope, that I will be doing a, a little bit better from this point on, and I won't have to take multiple breaks in the process of putting this episode together. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about New Mutants Volume 4, number 15, which had a March 2021 cover date. Stories called The Kids Ain't Alright, written by Vita or Vida Ayala. I'll never know how to pronounce that name. If anybody knows, please, please let me know. Art by Rod Reese, letters VCs Travis Lanham. Uh, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits B. So White Sapolsky. Cover price $4. This one went on sale January 27th of 2021. Now we open at the, uh, we're in the Academos Habitat, uh, more specifically the fort. Now I don't have my Academos map handy, so I gotta assume that we've seen reference to this place before, but I don't think we've actually visited just yet. Anyway, uh, this place kind of looks like uh, like Endor, like where the Ewoks hang out. It's like weird raised huts and stuff. Uh, but that doesn't really matter. What matters is the place is in absolute shambles, like smoldering and stuff here. Now, if we recall from last issue, the New Mutants wrote a missive to Professor Xavier about the young mutants and their idle hands, leading to things like vandalism and whatnot, and uh, this is further evidence of that. Now, Magic is here to ream out the remaining good kids, you know, the ones who were victimized by the bullies, because uh, they're not all that keen on pointing fingers to who done it. They figure that that'll only intensify uh, subsequent bullying. We see Fauna, the coffee pooper, and Curse, who I barely remember. Um, now, there are some other kids, too. Uh, one of them looks like a knockoff of Quentin Choir. Uh, anyway, these kids are questioned by Ilyana. And Fauna sort of kind of starts awkwardly spilling the beans, to which Magic cracks her knuckles and tells the Tots that she'll take care of it and uh, she'll probably have a lot of fun doing so. Double page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our featured mutants today are Danny Moonstar, Karma, Warlock, Magic, Wolfsbane, Warpath, Anole, Scout, Rainboy, Cosmar, No Girl, and the Shadow King. Now, we shift scenes over to a training session for the Shadow King students who were revealed at the end of last issue. Of course, that's Anole, Rainboy, Cosmar, and No Girl. Now, they're outside, right? So it seems as though uh, old Farouk's presence might not be such a secret. And we're going to talk more about that throughout the episode, including in just a few seconds. 
Anyway, the purpose of these training sessions is to get Cosmar ready to head into the Crucible. Hmm, the Crucible, huh? Well, you see, as I read this for the first time, I assumed that they surely meant to say the Quarry, because I don't think the Crucible does anything for still-powered mutants. Huh. More on that in a little bit as well. Now, Cosmar asks if the Shadow King will watch her fight, and he says he will. So I guess he's not in hiding then, is he? Our next stop is the Boneyard, where Dakin, Dakin, and Aurora with the Roll-Eyes are having themselves a flirt. Unfortunately for Dakin, Dakin, uh, his sorta kinda kid sister, niece, or whatever the hell she is, Scout, pops up right between them. Now, this is not how Dakin, Dakin, saw his alone time with Aurora going. And so he walks Scout out. He promises that they'll play later on, quote, claws out. Whatever that means. Scout understands, but she's clearly upset that she's being shown the door here. Let's shift gears and check out some Wild Hunt training time. We got Warpath still in his goofy gym teacher togs. He's once again playing up the importance of using powers in tandem. Now, when he stops to take a breath, Scout volunteers to help out. To which, James tells her to settle down, kinda dismissing her. Scout reminds him that she was created as part of an assassin group. To which, James tells her that she was just being used by humans and uh, she'll need to become better. Which is a kind of a dick thing to say. It's not like it was her choice to be, you know, a, you know, a spiky clone, right? Anyway, let's do some tandeming. We got Rain Boy and Shark Girl. They're, they synergize to create a Karsharodon hmm, Cyclone. I'm guessing that has something to do with sharks. It basically is a Sharknado. Um, Tempest and Armor synergize to create some Fire Armor, which is uh, not all that creative. Uh, Cosmar and Anole synergize to create... Uh, wait for it. And that's not me asking you to wait for it. That's just what their tandem move is called. It's the wait for it. Scout and Sprite synergize for a fastball special, but in the wrong direction, like away from the fight. Like, Sprite throws Scout away from the danger. So are the kids trying to keep Scout from getting hurt and or killed here? Or perhaps am I reading a little too much into this? Maybe seeing things I want to see. I don't know. Scout then chats up these four new young mutants who she claims to recognize from their time during the Age of X-Men. They claim not to know her from a hole in the wall, and they dismiss her as being kind of annoying and try-hard. So, poor Scout. Next up, an info page, and it's a reply to a letter from Elixir to Rain, who had apparently asked off-panel to have her son Tear resurrected. Now, if uh, what I just said is kind of shocking to you, and you maybe didn't know that Rain has a child or had a child, uh, well, she gave birth to Tear back during her time with X-Factor Investigations. This is, of course, the Peter David run. Now, he died during the whole weird strong guy as King of Hell storyline, and the five claim that they cannot verify that Tear is actually dead. And so, the kid isn't even in the resurrection queue at the moment. So, bad news for Rain, and we're going to actually check in with her right now, back at the Sextant. There, Rain confides in Danny just how upset she is that the five won't resurrect her son. 
From here, we get a really great splash page that explains everything that happened with Rain, uh, Himrari, the Asgardian wolf god who Rain mated with, and their child, Tyr. At the end of it, Tyr is impaled by Guido's trident. Karma enters and reminds them that there's a party for Doug and Bay's reception that evening at the Green Lagoon. Danny offers to Rain that she could uh, skip it, you know, spend time with her, but Rain's insistent that they all go to be there to celebrate for Doug. Danny and Karma head out. Rain says she'll be there in a bit. And when she's all alone, the art turns a bleak off-white. It's very, very well done here. All the color just kind of drips off the panel here, except for Rain is, is still fully colored. Next up, another info page, and it's from the Journal of Amal Farouk. And it's more setup of Amal's origin story. It seems he was possessed by the entity that would be known as the Shadow King. We know that. But it is a nice reminder that they are two distinct entities. And that's going to uh, be something I'm going to run with during our discussion in just a little bit here. Because uh, the fact that we're getting a reminder of that here, I don't know that it's an accident. Um, But we'll get there. We'll get there. Right now, though, the story shifts over to the Green Lagoon. And before we get into the story, I gotta say that the Shadow King, or Amal Farouk, is here. Like, he's literally standing less than a yard away from Cyclops and Havoc. So I guess we gotta assume that he is a known commodity on the island? Which I suppose means I can quit complaining about him debuting in this era, in that cluster scene during the Empire cash-in, because maybe he's just there. Um, also, it would appear that Peeper from the Sword Book is having a drink here. Uh, we got Bay carrying Doug in as though he's a baby, which is uh, funnier than it has any right to be. We see the Cannonball and Sunspot have popped in to celebrate the good news. And thankfully, it would appear as though Sam left his wife at home. And they have some fun with Doug. They, they kind of razz him a bit. Now, off to the side, Scout tries to track down Dakin, Dakin but uh, he's way too busy with Aurora to even notice her. Danny notices Rain sitting by herself at the bar and decides to give her some company. They don't get too far into their conversation, however, as they're interrupted by a very meek and nervous Cosmar. Now, here's that other shoe about to drop. Cosmar, all sheepishly, asks Danny if she would be her partner in The Crucible. Hmm... Upon hearing this, Anole celebrates that Cosmar was brave enough to go through with it, to go through with asking Danny for this favor. Danny, however, flatly refuses, explaining that the Crucible is for depowered mutants only, and Cosmar, well, she ain't depowered, is she? What Cosmar is, however, is horribly disfigured, and she's hoping to use a resurrection as a form of, like, maybe plastic surgery to return to what she used to look like before her powers manifested. Danny tells her that uh, it's not the way it works. And also, she gives her some spoo about not falling into human ideals of beauty traps, stuff like that. Cosmar stomps off in a huff. Now we wrap up the issue with the big dance scene and the Shadow King toasting to young love, youth, and a great future. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, um, it's Excalibur Day. So, uh, yeah, we'll get there. But uh, let's talk about this wonderful little issue of uh, New Mutants. Because, boy, it does give us a lot to talk about. Um, The Shadow King. Let's start with the Shadow King here. We're going to start with the Shadow King, and we're going to revisit him a little bit later on here. Um, 
the Shadow King entity, he, he's listed as Shadow King in the uh, roll call page. But that doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot. Uh, we kind of are fast and loose with what we name people in that. Uh, half the time, Jean is Jean Grey. The other half, she's Marvel Girl. I mean, we see sometimes Emma is the White Queen. Sometimes she's Emma Frost. Sometimes Sebastian Shaw is the Black King. Sometimes he's Sebastian Shaw. So uh, these might be just be mutant names, right? Instead of calling him Amal Farouk, they call him Shadow King. So is the Shadow King really here? Or is it just Farouk being weird and creepy? And are we, what I'm going to get to is, are we being misdirected? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go here. I just wanted to drop that in here before we even get into the meat of this uh, discussion. Let's move over to Scout. It really feels, and I, I hope I'm not, I, I mean, I hope I am right and I hope I'm not right, but uh, it feels like she's headed for the shredder, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I feel like... We're spending a whole heck of a lot of time in her shoes right now, which doesn't make me all that confident that she's long for this world. Uh, I think they're they're kind of setting us up here. Um, we're kind of getting the feels for her. They're really establishing her as a likable character, and um, I don't know. It just feels like uh, the opposite of it's always darkest before the dawn. It's always brightest before the night, or whatever. It's it feels like something's going down. And also, I kind of alluded to this during the synopsis here, but is it just me, or did it seem as though the Wild Hunt trainees were purposely making it so Gabby wasn't in any real grave danger? I mean, we saw some impressive, if not a little contrived, tandem power synergies, but for Gabby's, it was a fastball special away from the fray. Are the kids and students and trainers, are they aware that her potential resurrection might be a bit dicey? In that the Quiet Council might just decide to nix it all together? Maybe I'm just reading into it. Maybe I'm looking for patterns that I want to see. Or maybe maybe the art was a little unclear during the training session. Not sure which. Let's shift over to the Crucible here. Another huge takeaway from this issue. Now here, here's a roundabout way to examine something that we've talked about a lot on the show. Uh, you know, resurrections that quote-unquote fix the resurrectees in some way. And we've talked in the mailbag about, like, Chamber. You know, we've mentioned his face and chest being destroyed. Forge having cybernetic parts. Karma having a robot leg, right? And here, in this issue, we've got Cosmars. Everything, I guess. Um... Now, I like the idea of mutants viewing resurrection as a way of transforming themselves into their, I guess, idealized self. I mean, first of all, these are kids, right? And with Cosmo in particular, she was horribly disfigured when her powers manifested. So it stands to reason that she'd be interested in a redo, even if that means that she has to kill her current body. Especially with how devalued life has been overall during this era, which is another thing we've talked a lot about. So maybe, I, I mean, this might actually be received as something of a commentary on that phenomenon. Just how quickly these characters are to, uh, to decide, oh, I can die, you know? And I mean, we see people die. Let's just take X-Force, right? We see people die there on the regular. And it being dismissed as, A, a minor inconvenience... Like in the case of Cecilia Reyes, getting, you know, impaled by the Russian nesting doll, whatever. Or B, a flat-out joke, Quentin Quire. He dies, 
they kind of all laugh and say, "Ah, oh, he's dead again." You know, it's it it's turned into the uh, the South Park meme there. So, in light of that, why wouldn't the young mutants of Krakoa feel the exact same way that life doesn't have value, death isn't an end? Instead, it's an opportunity at a new beginning. Maybe this is a commentary on that, and yeah, I like that idea quite a lot. Something I didn't care for so much about this scene was Danny's response. Uh, I mean, she's not too removed from being a child herself. And here she is giving platitudes, like, don't fall into the trap of human ideals of beauty. I mean, come on. I mean, that's such a brush-off, and totally not what Cosmar needed to hear in that moment here. She was scared, she was nervous, she was hopeful. And, uh, you know, Danny, Danny responded with, uh, you know, a fortune cookie response. And, yeah, she didn't want to hear that. Now let's look at Cosmar's decision to use the crucible in order to accomplish this. Now that's... Well, I, I suppose with regard to the Krakoan status quo, it could be argued that that would have been a noble death. Now, if we go back to the genesis of the Crucible back in X-Men number 7, it was mentioned as being a way to stop all the depowered mutants from all at once deciding to commit suicide so they could be reborn with their powers. So, rather than commit suicide, Cosmar decided to try and go about this the right way. At the urging of her friends and Amal Farouk. Okay, let's talk about him again here. Now, whether or not the Shadow King's actually here, I'm not sure, because I actually did a little bit of research since I'm definitely not fluent in Farouk. Um, now, it seems that Amal himself is a mutant, but the Shadow King entity is more of like a multiversal manifestation. Now, if we dig into the all-new official Marvel handbook, number 9, September 2006, cover date, it suggests that Farouk had merged with the Shadow King, who has been able to bounce from host to host, and we get a little bit more of a refresher on that in the info page in this very issue. So, might we posit that the Shadow Kingness of the situation might be a little bit of a misdirection? Perhaps Farouk is just Farouk right now. I mean, he's a telepath, so that doesn't rule out that he's acting nefariously or influencing those around him. Or, maybe we're just supposed to think he's up to no good because he does look like a bad guy, and we'll ultimately find out that he's not a bad guy. I, I mean, that's kind of a far-out theory, but, you know, stranger things have happened, especially in this era. At this point, I wouldn't be surprised to see that he'd eventually, you know, wind up taking Apocalypse's seat at the Quiet Council. I mean, stranger things have definitely happened. Now let's shift gears and talk a bit about Rain and her situation. Her son, Tyr, has been off the table since 2013. And I don't know that he's even been referred to all that much in the interim, though, of course, I was away from the Xbox for part of that. Now, this seems like an interesting path to take with Rain, which inspires a few questions. I'm not sure why Tyr's death is in question when members of the earlier incarnation of X-Factor Investigations actually witnessed it happening. I mean, Guido is currently living on Krakoa right now, and he's the guy who ran him through with the Trident. Why can't we just ask him? Like, hey, did you kill Tyr when you were under Mephisto's influence? And he, yeah, yeah, okay, cool, let's get that egg cooking, right? Now, this certainly wasn't just dropped in the book here for no reason. I'm sure it's going to be addressed here, and part of me is 
concerned, if not a little worried, that since this is a New Mutants book, and since there are so few seminal New Mutants stories out there to kind of uh, exploit and revisit, that this might be leading to a let's-go-find-and-rescue-tear-from-Asgard story, which I really, really don't want to see. Um, that said, it would make total sense for it to go that way. It just if it does go that way, it's just not something I'm all that much looking forward to, I guess. One last story takeaway, uh, Doug and Bay's reception. It was pretty neat to see it. Got some fun cameos, and it was cool seeing Sam and Roberto again. I wonder if they'll be sticking around. I couldn't say. That'd be interesting to see. Now, art, as usual, was fantastic. Though, as previously mentioned, I will admit again that I had a little trouble following the wild hunt scene with Scout in particular. I don't know... If she was being thrown away from the fray, or if I just totally misunderstood the scene. That's possible. You never know. Overall, another really, really good issue of New Mutants was so much interesting stuff to think about, talk about, discuss, and analyze. And uh, the book, I mean, it's really finding its way here. Uh, I'm really, really pleased with it, and I'm definitely looking forward to more. But uh, that is our discussion for uh, this issue of New Mutants here. We're just going to hop into the mailbag before we cut on out. It's a short mailbag, just a one message today. And it's from our friend Evan talking about Juggernaut number 5. Now he says, You're right, this did feel a little rushed. But I thought it was fun, and while I'm not clamoring for the further adventures of Quicksand, Primus got a few good quips in. It would be interesting to see who Nisiesa would add to this roster if he was given the chance. Most likely, if we see this group again, it'll be after they've been trounced off-panel by some larger menace. Yeah, it's true. I I don't see this as being an A, B, or even C list team here. (laughs) This is is the team that you would put a debuting big bad against so he could just, like you put it, trounce this, uh, this group of geeks here. This is... You know, when uh, when Doomsday showed up, they had him beat up Darkseid. You know, it's you always uh, you always have to legitimize your new bad guys here, and I think this weirdo team is probably uh, is good fodder for that. And talking about how rushed this felt, um, it's weird. Uh, you know, over the past little while here, Marvel shifted its its uh, miniseries from being six issues long to five issues long, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, it's Good in that, I mean, decompression is a little bit less. It's bad in that so many of the creators are still writing the first four chapters as heavily decompressed and then are rushing to fill, to get to a conflict and a climax in the fifth and final issue. That's kind of bad. Um, also, we're making the, uh, the trade paperbacks a little bit thinner, so I think... Uh, Trade waiters are getting a little bit less for their money, which I'm not a trade waiter, and I, I I guess I don't have too much sympathy for people who don't buy the single issues. But at the same time here, I don't want to see the uh, the fandom shrink any more than it has. So I want to see people getting their uh, their money's worth here. So if we were paying $15 or $20 for a six-issue mini uh, tr- collected in trade, and now we're paying the same amount for a five-issue mini collected in trade, I could see some fans, those who would notice anyway, uh, being kind of annoyed by that. Now, Evan continues, I agree the most likely explanation for Kane's exile from Krakoa seems to be editorial inconsistency. 
It would be interesting for an in-story elaboration on this. Maybe it's as simple as Kane being unwilling to cause a problem. We saw what happened with Dead- when Deadpool wasn't allowed, so they had to compromise with him to avoid further problems. And it's probably a whole lot easier to let Kyle live on Krakoa than deal with Northstar's reaction to banning him. Not saying either of those approaches is wrong, but it may be easier to draw a hard line if Juggernaut, somewhat ironically, isn't going to rock the boat. All great points there, and I, I definitely agree that uh, editorial inconsistency, like I, like I mentioned during the discussion of the issue, is probably the culprit here. And if you haven't listened to the uh, Juggernaut number 5 uh, episode, what I had suggested was perhaps uh, Fabian Nicieso wasn't told that uh, there are non-mutants living on Krakoa. I mean, it's the same editorial team, but maybe they just didn't pass along that information here because the answers that Kane was getting were very much uh, like boilerplate answers. Like, he talked to Black Tom, who he's been you know associated with for decades at this point, and... Uh, Juggernaut mentions, hey, I wish I was going to Krakoa, and Tom just says, no, mutants only, despite the fact that there are non-mutants living there. It just seems like maybe maybe Fabian didn't get the memo that uh, that Krakoa does house a few non-mutants. And, I mean, this is something that is so easily rectified here, just having, having a little scene of Xavier being like, no, he'll never live on my island, because, you know, that they, they have a history, of course. They're stepbrothers. They, uh... They have a rocky, rocky history here. It's easy to fix that. It's easy to just mention that in passing, and it would answer all of our questions, you know. Uh, Evan continues, and we're shifting focus to actually something we talked about quite a bit today. He says, In the same way, as much as I liked Scout raising the clone issue, I think she would be far more likely to be resurrected because she's important to Wolverine. Whereas the only person who wanted Madeline Pryor back was Havoc, and he is, for reasons yet unknown, still in the doghouse. He also has a weird, uh, what he calls a weird and probably wrong Havoc theory, which goes something like this. What if the reason he has something wrong with his mind and they're relegating him to the Hellions without much therapy or other help is because malice is inside his mind somehow? That's based largely on the presence of the other Marauders in the book than any actual clues. It sounded better before Havoc died, though. Could she be stuck in his mind somehow, tied together with his Cerebro backup? Possibly. Very possibly here. Um, if we look to just another book in this, uh, in this family here, we have X-Factor, where Siren, there is definitely <laughs> something going on in Siren's mind. And... Uh, she's been resurrected twice, and she still has it. So if Havoc does have malice uh, attached to him somehow, there's a possibility that that could be all mucked up in the Cerebro backup. So that is a very interesting theory, and I wonder I wonder if that will play out here. I, I was wondering about that with Siren when she came back and she was still kind of... I don't know if she's possessed or, or what, but... Uh, I mean, there's definitely still something wrong with her, and uh, I, I, it could definitely stand to reason that uh, Alex was resurrected with whatever kind of malady or baggage that he had that he had perished with. So that's I don't know that that's a wrong theory. That's a, that's as valid a theory as any, I believe. Now, Evan wraps up with, maybe they want to preserve her and can't figure out how to separate them. Seems unlikely, though. She seems that she, she seems like she would be a big problem for Krakoan security and secrecy, but I wonder what her status is right now. And I don't know. I don't know what Malice's uh, status is right now. 
I want to say the last time I even remember reading anything with Malice is, and it was when she, uh, and this is a you know relatively ancient story, when she got into uh, Sue Richards' brain and uh, made her do the uh, the four boob window, right? I think <laughs> I think that's when she was with Malice, or was it the boob window, or was it just like straight up kind of uh, bondagey kind of gear? I, it's been forever since I looked at that stuff, but that's. The last time I thought about Malice But, um, you know, Malice is obscure enough to uh, to fit in that Hellions book somehow I, I could certainly see it I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing if they ever tell us what's going on with Havoc's mind I, I have a few theories myself Most of them have to do with Alex himself kind of being gaslit by the, uh, the Quiet Council Either used as a mole or put in these situations to derive some mental anguish or mental uh, trauma, I suppose. Though, I-, I couldn't tell you what the payoff for such a thing would be, so uh, my my theory is probably very, very wrong. But uh, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on uh, that handful of subjects there. Thank you so much. But uh, that'll do it for the mailbag today. If uh, you would like to write in and be part of the mailbag, hey, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, which is also the home of X-Lapsed Origins, a series of articles exploring some seminal moments that still inform the books to this very day. Uh, as you're listening to this episode, I believe the first installment of the Alan Moore, Alan Davis, Captain Britain is going up on the site. So if you're interested in that phenomenal run, consider popping over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com to check it out. There's also xlapse.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com for all the xlapse stuff. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, and uh, we're getting more members by the day. So thank you all so much for coming along for this ride. It's uh, really awesome to have uh, such an such an excellent community. Um, also, for your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your aggregation applications. And if you like what you hear, please consider telling a friend. It would really, really mean a lot. But uh, that'll do it for today's episode. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for listening and spending a little bit of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.